Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today I'm going to be telling Kate about a book by Anne Lamott called Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life. Cute. I like that title. Yeah, this book, I just was out strolling like on a Sunday at the farmer's market and there was a little book shop. Look at your rom-com life. I know. And I was like, (laughs) I was, I've been... This last, like, six months since February, I was writing a lot because I was trying to finish a first draft of a memoir that I've been working on for years. And so it was, like, kind of in the middle of that. And I just wanted some, like, writing inspiration. And I went into this little bookshop and I found this book. And I've known of Anne Lamott because she has a quote that I love that I'm going to butcher, but it's something like, Um, you own everything that's ever happened to you. If people wanted you to write better about them, they should have behaved better. And (laughs) I've always loved it because I just think it gives you so much permission as like an author of memoir to be honest about the things that happened to you because they're your things. Um, And so I saw this book and I was like, oh my God, that's Anne Lamott. I, I love that quote by her. So I picked it up and it just turned out to be such a really, I don't know, like tender and funny book. Um, so anyway, I'm very excited to tell you about it. Yay. I'm excited too. Yeah. So I'll start with a summary and then her book is, uh, broken into four different sections. It's like, oh God, what is, one is on writing. The next is the writing frame of mind. The third is help along the way. And the fourth is publication and other reasons to write. And then there's a, there's a part five, which is just the last chapter called the last class. And she's writing it kind of in the form that she teaches her writing classes. So um, she refers to her writing classes a lot throughout the book. And I'm just going to like pull a few chapters out that I thought were really insightful and interesting. And I'm going to focus more on like the first and third sections, I think is kind of how it ended up. But um, that was mostly because the middle section was on a lot of like character development plot and setting the stage type of things, which I don't really do because I write memoir and that is more for someone who's like writing like not or writing fiction. Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's, it's not true that you can't like use any of those insights to help with nonfiction, but it's just a different beast. And I don't find that sort of thing as interesting for myself. So anyway. Okay, so I'm going to start with a summary. Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life is a nonfiction book by Anne Lamott published in 1994. The book is part memoir, part guide to writing, and part reflection on life itself. The title comes from a family anecdote where Lamott's father advises her younger brother, overwhelmed by a school project on birds, to take it bird by bird. And the book explores the challenges and joys of the writing process, emphasizing the importance of perseverance, honesty, and self-compassion for writers. Lamott shares personal experiences, anecdotes, and insights about writing, including the messy first drafts, self-doubt, and the struggles that writers face. Also, Lamott delves into broader life lessons, addressing issues like perfectionism, jealousy, and the importance of community and support. 
Through the book, she provides practical advice, practical advice, and encouragement to help writers navigate their creative journey, reminding them that writing, like life, is a journey best taken one step at a time. Oh, cute. I like it. Yeah. It's a very compassionate and accessible book. And I think it does something that a lot of a lot of writing books try to do, which is address that fear and um like inadequacy that people feel when they're trying to write. Mm-hmm. Um but I felt like the way she did it was just more human and honest and maybe like down to earth than some of the other books I've read. Like we read that book of by Stephen King on writing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I was comparing these two a lot. And I loved that book. It was nothing against that book. But I just found this one to be more human in a way that was surprising. Yeah. Uh, I do remember on writing to be very much like this is how I do things. And not so much like you'll find your own way of what works best for you. Right. And I feel like I remember a few parts of like. I think he said something and I could be wrong. So I, whatever, don't hold it to me, I guess. But (laughs) I feel like I remember him being like, look, if you're not a good writer, sometimes you will never be like, that's not necessarily something that can be taught, Mm -hmm. which is, I actually agree with that. But I feel like, I don't know. I just think the way he went about it was a little bit pretentious at times. And I feel like hers is not at all. Like, I don't feel like she mentioned anything about like, well, you might just suck and that might just be it and you need to face that. <laughs> you, know? you might be a worthless bag of garbage and that might just be who you are. And that's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It's totally fine to be the worst writer in all of existence. And I'm here to tell you to just hang up your pen now. Just do it. Exactly. Yeah. Not the most encouraging. <laughs> Not I, at all. I think he for sure is uh, more harsh too and just the way he presents information. Like there's not a lot of like tactfulness around the way he says things. No. And I think like, yeah, that is, that has its own type of beauty sometimes. Um, But as someone who was interested in like a book on the writing process, I found this one much more satisfying and comforting than on writing by Stephen King. Um, Okay. So yes, this book is about writing, which we love. And I said already, I read it because I've been working on a memoir and I wanted that additional perspective on the writing process. It was, it was kind of fun because I was like so far into that draft of my memoir when I read the book that it wasn't like, I didn't have any of that anxiety or like overwhelm that you feel when you're at the beginning of a really big project. And you're kind Mm. of like, will I even be able to do this? Because I was so close to the end that I was like, I knew I was going to be able to do it. And this was just like a nice additional insight to the whole thing that I found cool. So anyway, that's that. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to start with a question from you, Oh my God. And I meant to text this to you this week and I just completely forgot because I was going to give you time to think about it. So I'm so sorry. Uh, We can always come back. We'll just cut out the two hours I'll take to think about it. And then it'll feel like 20 seconds. Uh, okay well here's the question so obviously you went to grad school and you I know you did a lot of writing then and Mm -hmm. I'm curious can you think of a piece of writing advice you got that stayed with you or helped you when you were like trying to complete a lot of writing one of the things that I learned 
I think it was from Chris, my husband, who had said, when you're writing, try to write in active voice instead of passive voice, um, which automatically elevates the way that you're saying things and forces you to think through how you're using the sentence structure. Um, and I think that was something that was a big change uh, almost immediately in my writing that I think it's like easy to implement, but it's not something that you think about if no one's ever said it to you before. Yeah, that's true. And I feel like the, the I think people who don't have a lot of confidence in their writing tend to like fall onto the passive voice because it's less um, concrete in a way. Like, for example, if you're listening and you're trying to figure out what we mean, like passive voice would be something like, oh, it happened to that. But active voice is more like Chris did X, Y, Z. So mm -hmm. it, when you're using passive voice, it's almost like you're <laughs> like saying like you have, I, I don't know, you can't hold this to me. Like this, this just is something <laughs> that happened, you know? And it's like using yeah. the active voice forces you to be like, no, I actually need to make sure this is true. And that this really happened in this way versus like, well, maybe it could have been like this. Yeah. And I don't know if that is how you think of it, but that's how I've always thought of it. Like, you have to be accountable to what you're saying. Yeah, I think it also just in general makes your writing come across a lot more confident. And especially yeah. when you're writing a research paper or you're making an actual argument, like in nonfiction writing of any kind, I think that is really important because it's not just like, this could be true. <laughs> it's yeah. like, no, I'm saying like, this is what happened. And this is why this matters, you know. Um, and I think the active voice is, is really important in that like realm. Yeah, well, especially if you're making an argument. And I think when, when I was younger, and in learning how to write, especially like research papers, this was something that I just didn't want to do. Like in order to make an argument, you have to know things. And in order to know things, you have to research things. Yeah. And I just didn't want to do that. You know, that yeah. was like, ugh, yeah. ugh, no. So. Yeah. I mean, it's also like the skill of researching is not just pulling quotes from a bunch of random articles because you yeah. need 20 sources. It's reading a bunch of sources and then developing an argument based on what you read and what supports totally. that. And yeah. when you're an undergrad, I think we like, uh, well, undergrad whatever any any school of any kind i think that we push the first process a lot more because we're like you have to have 20 sources or you have to have 10 sources or whatever and it's like well that's not actually a great way of teaching people how to research it's a way of teaching people how to cite things um and even then it's a little bit iffy as to whether people are really learning that skill Totally. Well, because what I would always do is I'd come up with an argument and then I would find things to support that argument versus right. reading things and learning and then being like, you know what, I think blah, 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 based yeah. on what I've learned. And then yeah. you already have all the evidence you need. Right. But that process seemed so much slower than mm -hmm. just coming up with an idea and finding things that made sense with it. It's also, a lot more work for yeah. any student. And if you have like four papers due, you're like, whatever. Who cares? I'm, I'm just doing the easiest thing. way. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm not saying anything against, you know, I think that's a strategy and you should employ it when you need to. <laughs> but when you're trying to become a better writer, there's yeah, really, it really helps you to start from that foundation and work off of that versus like just kind of trying to piece it together as you go. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I love that. That's such a good, that's such a good one. 
Um, I was trying to think for myself, what is one that I really felt helped me in my writing. And it's something like if you've taken a creative writing course or done, I mean, any kind of writing, but I think it shows up in creative writing most often is this concept of show don't tell where like, if you're trying to write about someone's qualities in some way or something that happened instead of like spelling it out, like, well, this is what happened or this is how someone is. You want to create these scenes or interactions that reveal that in and of itself and let the reader come to that conclusion. Like, oh, this person is selfish and angry or whatever based Mm -hmm. off of the scenario instead of writing this person is selfish and angry because that (laughs) is not as convincing or interesting as the reader coming to that conclusion on their own. Yeah. And that is something that like, I think that's a concept that we can all understand, but we all have to find our own way into it in our writing of like, well, how do I show people instead of telling them? Mm -hmm. And I've always found that to be just like such a satisfying little puzzle for myself when I'm writing to be like, well, what am I, am I explaining or am I like just letting it reveal itself Mm -hmm. through the the writing? So I've always loved that piece of advice. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely notice that a lot, um, on TV shows too, where they'll have dialogue between two characters where one character will just say, you know, something so obvious and like (laughs) takes you out of it so much because they're like, Joe is act- <laughs> Joe is a selfish person and he's selfish and that leads to him doing XYZ and it's like yeah, okay that's yeah. that's so boring. It's like so there's boring. nothing more boring yeah. than you having introducing a character to introduce a dialogue yes. Yes. that tells me what I'm supposed to think. Yeah. Like I don't need that or want that from you ever. No. And I notice it in when I'm reading a lot in like when the author is trying to explain relationships like oh this person has a daughter instead Mm -hmm. of finding like a natural way to introduce the fact that they have a daughter it'll be like oh hi my name's emily and this is my daughter sam yeah it's just this like weird (laughs) clunky like okay we get it you were just too lazy to like work this in better but i've always i think that stuff is so funny where you're just like okay i see what you're doing but like a little lazy to be honest yeah like think about like when's the last time that you were out and had a conversation with someone like new and said something that obvious. Like most of the time we don't speak that way. I mean, yeah. uh, sure. We do introductions. So like, yes. I guess that is yeah. like one thing, but if you run into a friend on the street, you don't all of a sudden say, ha ha, my daughter is so weird. Exactly. Like, you, exactly. Like, you, you don't like, talk like that. No, not at all. So I don't know. I just find that sort of thing. So hilarious, but yeah, um, we all do it. Sometimes we're all lazy sometimes, but I just, I've always kept that note in my mind, but okay. So I'm going to take us through three different chapters and highlight some pieces that I thought were really like just fun and insightful. And I'm going to start with this first one called shitty first drafts. And so I'll just tell you like sort of what it's about. Obviously from the title, it's about shitty first drafts. (laughs) No way. And Lamont says that these first drafts being bad is just, not only inevitable, inevitable, 
but essential to the process of good writing. So you have to start somewhere. You have to dump it all out, put the words on the paper. Half of them or more than half of them are going to be bad and unusable, but they will get you to the place that you needed to go. And that raw material will start to form itself into something real and good and thought provoking. So her whole argument with this section is don't let the fear of being bad at writing or having bad writing keep you from moving through the process to good writing Mm -hmm. because she sort of describes herself as very, very anxious and neurotic. And she always worries when she's starting writing that like, she's going to die in the middle of it and someone's going to find her like terrible writing and be like, Oh my (laughs) gosh, she sucked. But it's like, you can't let that stop you from like getting to the good stuff because that's really like part of the process. (laughs) It's so funny because I'm like, I've never thought that. And so that would never be something that would prevent me from writing. But totally understand that like beginning something is hard and beginning from a blank page is harder. Like I'm a designer and every time that you begin anything new, like the very first thing that I always want to do is just like put a bunch of things, a bunch of sketches down that are probably not going to work. And then like work from there because it's like you need to put something on the page for it to feel like you can do something to it otherwise the blank page just feels so intimidating that it's like well I can't put something down that isn't perfect you know yeah no it's like having something to build off of and adjust is so much easier than having nothing and having to create it Mm -hmm. like it's like did you ever play with Legos as a kid oh yeah I loved Legos Did you ever have one of those, like, ours was this, like, green square that was just, like, the Lego. Oh, like like the foundation. Yeah, and you would Mm -hmm. click them into that. I feel like, imagine making a Lego house with that versus without it. It's so much easier with it because you have something to, like, stabilize the rest of the Mm -hmm. Lego pieces. And that's what I think of, like, a first draft being. Like, it's mostly garbage, maybe. But it gives you that, like, foundation (laughs) to, like, work off of. And it's so great. So, okay, I'm going to read this little section from this chapter, and I think it's going to help you see, like, kind of the way she writes and how she's, like, funny and, like, a little neurotic. Um, The the other thing I was going to say about her, because I looked her up after while I was reading this book, I was like, I wonder what this person is like, because she talks about her Christian faith, which for me, unfortunately, is always, like, a red flag. I'm like, uh uh-oh. I don't know. (laughs) I don't Um, trust you. (laughs) I don't know about this. But she's, like, very... (sighs) you know, open-minded, I could tell in her writing. And so I was like, all right, this is probably okay. But I looked her up and she is still, still alive. Um, I don't remember how old she is, but she's, you know, older. She's probably like 60s, 70s now. And she's a, a white woman and she has dreadlocks. And I was like, oh God, that is a red flag. That's oh, a red flag. no. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, I really like what you're doing here, but I really do not like what you're doing there anyway oh yikes and, okay. and like weird cultural <laughs> stuff aside they look so bad on her so that is the first and worst i'm sure assault. they do like dreadlocks <laughs> are not made so for terrible. white people's hair no, hence and why they, white people blonde use them so it's like the worst possible combination that you can have for dreadlocks and lamont i'm sorry if you hear this but i don't approve anyway just like not everything is for you Just let it be. (laughs) It's not. And it really is not. Okay. Okay. So she says, 
I know some very great writers, writers you love who write beautifully and have made a great deal of money and not one of them sits down routinely feeling wildly enthusiastic and confident. Not one of them writes elegant first drafts. All right. One of them does, but we do not like her very much. We do not (laughs) think she has, (laughs) she has a rich inner life or that God likes her or even can stand her. Although when I mentioned this to my priest friend, Tom, he said, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) And I was like, well, God does hate all the same people I do. And I'm right about that. (laughs) God and I are besties. We have a group chat where we complain about all the people we hate. (laughs) (laughs) Like, did you see that bullshit she posted on Instagram? Can you even believe it? Um... Anyway, I, while I was reading this chapter or like writing this um, section for the podcast, I was thinking about Karen Kilgariff, who hosts that very famous podcast, My Favorite Murder. Maybe a weird podcast, but I always thought Karen Kilgariff is very funny. She's a comedian and she uh, used to be very active on Twitter. I don't know if she still is, but she had just like the funniest style of tweeting And she and her co-host, Georgia, were writing a memoir um, at one point a few years ago. And Karen tweeted something about the writing process. And all it said was, whenever I sit down to write, I just scream, it has to be bad. And then I start typing. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like that has kept me going through so much of my own writing to just be like, it has to be bad. Do the bad thing. And then you can get to the good thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the idea that anyone sits down and um comes I I don't know I think this is like hitting on a lot of people's like perfectionist tendencies obviously where Mm -hmm. it's like I want to make something good I don't want to make something bad and in order to make something good you have to make something bad people don't want to get through the bad part but there's also like a second piece of it which uh is actually I think where I struggle a lot more when I find myself needing to do like drafts of something Mm -hmm. um which is what we were a little bit talking about with the research which Mm -hmm. it's like I don't want to have to put in a lot of work that I end up redoing. And Mm, so a part of me is like, but I want to not have to do 18 drafts of this design. I want to just do three and be done. But ultimately, I always find myself at the end of the process when I've done, you know, seven drafts of something, it being substantially and noticeably better than the second or third one and so it's like you have to put yourself through a process you don't like because at the end you know that it will have paid off because you've seen it pay off in other end products but I think if this is your first time ever writing it's really hard to like motivate yourself to get through that if you've never seen the end product turn out so well and you haven't like learned that lesson so that feels like something that I I think I have struggled with in the past and do still even though I have seen the end product turn out well but I think it's something that I've seen other people struggle with too yeah I I think it's similar with feedback too where when you write something or design something you really need to get feedback on it because if you don't, you will miss things that are really need to be changed or could be made better. Mm -hmm. But when you are doing something vulnerable, it is really hard to like submit that for feedback in any capacity. And I have had feedback on my writing enough now to know that 
you don't have to take everybody's feedback. Like they could say something that you disagree with and that's okay. You don't have to like incorporate Mm -hmm. it. But every time I have gotten feedback, it has helped me rearrange things or connect dots that I had missed or just elaborate on pieces Mm -hmm. that maybe I was like, okay, you're talking about this too much. Like this is boring. Don't keep going. And I've gotten feedback that's like, no, I wish you had like gone more into that. Like I was so curious about it Mm -hmm. and you didn't talk about it enough. So all that is to say that I I think there are painful parts of the process, like having to continue revising or getting feedback. But like you said, I have seen it pay off so much to know that it is so worth it. And I think you're right. It's really hard when you've never had that experience to know like how worth it it is. But- yeah, I, I think about like when I was writing my undergraduate thesis, uh, right before I submitted it and was like final draft done with it. Uh, my advisor had said like, I had said like, Oh, okay. I'm making these edits and then I'm going to send it to you again. And then I'll like submit the final draft. And she was like, I actually don't want you to do that. Just like make your edits and then decide like when you're going to submit it. Because I think the last draft needs to be in your voice. And I think that that is something that, to your feedback point is always true. Like you can take people's feedback and then be like, okay, what am I really trying to say here and what's not coming across and reevaluate that way? As opposed to being like, oh, I need to change this word from this to this because somebody didn't like that and it struck them weird. Like, no, that's not yeah. the, <laughs> the that's kind not of thing it. that you necessarily yeah. have to do. No. Um, but getting feedback about how something you've created is being perceived mm-hmm. is so vital to the process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think like sometimes we think of feedback as copy editing, which it's not like copy editing is that line by line checking for typos, looking for grammar, picking words that are better. And Mm -hmm. that is like helpful, but it's not the same thing as like giving feedback on the actual argument or the concept Mm -hmm. and the structure of something. And at the end of the day, it's like nothing that is ever complete will ever be perfect. Like, I I find typos in books that I'm reading all the time that are published books that sold copies, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I was just looking at my thesis from grad school uh, the other week, and I found a typo in the intro. And I was like, ah, cool. <laughs> like, nothing is ever perfect. Okay, it's fine. Um, so, yeah, it's just like, I think it, when I was younger in my mind, I was like, well, this has to be gone through with a fine-tooth comb. Like, it has to be rock solid and it should be if it's like your thesis or something official but I just have a lot more perspective now to know that like nothing is ever completely perfect and that's fine Mm -hmm. yeah and I also think the process of creating anything is knowing when to stop and that's completely a determination made by the creator you can keep working on something for years and years and years if that's what you deem appropriate. Or you can yeah. decide that, you know, after six drafts, that's actually where you want to leave it because this is where you what you want it to be. Um, and so that determination, I think, is a responsibility that belongs to the creator and, like, nobody else can really... I mean, you can say, like, I disagree. I think you should have been working on this, I guess. Totally. But it's, <laughs> totally. it, it is ultimately the creator's decision to make you know yeah uh I had another question for you and I feel like we've talked about it a lot but maybe you can add more to it it's uh what do you find harder 
writing the first draft or, you know, writing, designing, whatever, or editing a draft into something cohesive and strong. I feel like you have said the first thing is harder. Yeah, for sure. Putting something on a blank page is always hardest for me. I also think that I don't actually have a hard time editing. And I know that that... Mm-hmm. Um, like kill your darlings kind of thing is yeah, like really yeah. hard for some people. Yeah. But I I will often make something and then make a graveyard of what I've made. So whether I'm writing or whether I'm designing. And so it's like, okay, you're not deleting it. It's not gone forever. But just like set it in this parking lot. And then if you, if you ever, if you're like writing and then you're like, oh, I actually wish I had that paragraph back, then go get it. Um, but I would say like nine times out of 10, once you take it out, you're like, no, it it is so much better without it. So that kind of thing is is actually easy for me. And I, I like it because it's almost yeah. like putting together a puzzle of being like, oh, I have all the pieces here and now I just need to like see how they fit together. Yeah, I feel the same way. I've like described it as Tetris. Like once I have that like first draft. The the thing that's interesting though for me is that the first draft is fast and easy to get down and the editing is like much slower hmm. and in some ways harder, but it's more satisfying work to me and it feels like less daunting sometimes where it's like all I have to do is figure out how to move this around and like figure out what's missing. I don't have to create something out of nothing here. Like I've got it. I just need to make it good. But sometimes like when I'm writing that first draft, like it's easy to just like brain dump and I'll be like writing and I'm like, Oh my God, I had no idea I had this much to say about this, you know? So yeah, I think sometimes we equate like how fast we can do something with how easy it is. And I think what I'm trying to say is, editing is slower for me but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is like harder i don't know i've contradicted myself a couple times here but (laughs) (laughs) that's part of the process (laughs) the moral of this story is that everything is difficult actually Uh, it is it is but it's good and it's fun um sometimes sometimes it's not (laughs) but speaking of having more to say than you realized Um, I'm going to talk about this next chapter that she calls school lunches. And I found that after I read this section, I kept thinking about it. And I think that um, is a sign that something was really good and resonated with you when Mm -hmm. like you're finding yourself thinking about it days and weeks later. So in this chapter, Lamott describes an exercise that she will teach her students when they are lamenting that they don't have anything to write about or they're just like, God, I don't know what to do. Um, she will tell them to go home and write down everything they can remember about school lunches. And she like has had them in her classes. She'll spend 30 minutes, like just write everything you can think of about school lunches. And so she's doing this impassioned exercise of showing you the value of picking a really rich topic that may not seem like it has that much to offer at first and then writing about it. And the the places it takes you are rather surprising and they can lead to memories or insights or even potential characters. Like if you're working on fiction that you wouldn't have considered before, but it all starts with the actual process of writing and giving yourself the time and space to do it without a destination in mind and without the need for whatever you're writing to be groundbreaking or life altering immediately. 
something that I found, I think you, you kind of described it a little bit where you were saying um, you don't want to spend or waste time like revising or making multiple drafts of something. When I've been in the middle of like a big writing project, I will feel this sense of like, I don't want to write unless it's on that because it's a waste of time. Like I only have a limited amount of energy for writing and I want to use all that energy for writing the thing I'm working on, not writing like other shit. About school lunches. Yeah. Exactly. But sometimes when we write just for the sake of writing, it opens up like a part of our mind and helps us process information in a way that gives us way more energy and clarity about the the real quote unquote real project we're working on. And I think that's what she's helping you understand here. Or if you are never, you've never written and you don't have a project starting with some topic like school lunches or holidays, like everything you can remember at Christmas as a kid, like something that we all have had a lot of experiences with can just open up such a vast like portal into your past that Mm -hmm. you can pull from. Yeah. And I think, too, like sometimes people have the want or desire to do something creative, but then they second guess, like, what could I possibly have to say? And I think doing an exercise like this seems like it would be helpful in that of being able to say, like, no, if I actually think about it and I start whatever creative venture this is, I can come up with something to say and that can be in my voice and that can be meaningful to me or to others or whatever. Um, But I've definitely heard that from people before of like, you know, this topic has been done too much. What what do I possibly have to add to this? You know? Yeah. 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 I felt that way. Like when Roe v. Wade was overturned, I felt like I had this really intense desire to write about it. But I just kind of felt like, what the fuck do I have to say that A, hasn't been said and B, hasn't been said by someone who's much more equipped to say it than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did end up writing something about it. And it was like based off of not just it wasn't like Roe v. Wade philosophically. It was about thoughts I had about a tie to a relationship of mine that had ended. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, well, actually I am the best positioned person to talk about that because no one else has had this relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it can be really daunting to talk about some topic that is so big and monumental to people. But when we center ourselves in our experiences of it, that I think opens up the place where, well, that's where you have something you need to say Mm -hmm. because you only you have this perspective on this thing yeah based on your experiences yeah and i think like that is important too to recognizing that your experience is not everyone's and it's okay to talk about good and evil through the lens of something that you experienced or it's okay to talk about sexism or whatever it is through your lens um and have it not be the thing that describes everyone's experience of good and evil or of divorce or of like you know whatever that is right and so um it seems like an important recognition as a writer to say like Mm -hmm. I'm grounding this in my experience because this is also a part of me as opposed to being like I'm speaking for everyone because it's like well when has that ever worked out well (laughs) yeah or when you like go into it thinking I want this to be on the level of like a feminist essayist you know like famous essayist it's like well don't set yourself up like that like yeah yeah. it doesn't have to be (laughs) like chances are 
even if the quality of the writing is that good, it won't be recognized ever in the same way. Mm -hmm. So like, don't go in thinking it has to be like that because it doesn't. Also, even when that person wrote it, a lot of it had to do with the timing in which it was received. So when you think about historically important documents, a lot of them are historically important because of what was happening in that moment. It wasn't just the brilliance of the person speaking. So uh, it's important to recognize that too, that like, even when they made it, they were not thinking this will be remembered for centuries. Yeah. It's like, well, maybe they didn't even think about it at all, you know? Totally. Yeah. And it's just, just like kind of luck and all that. And that sucks, but just don't think about that. Just focus on what it is you want to say about yeah. your experiences. Um, okay. So I'm going to read this next section that is in the school lunches part. And it says, um, I heard Natalie Goldberg, the author of Writing Down the Bones, speak on writing once. Someone asked her for the best possible writing advice she had to offer. She held up a yellow legal pad, pretended her fingers held a pen, and scribbled away. I think this was some sort of Zen reference, the Buddhist discipline remembering Buddha's flower sermon, in which all Buddha did was hold up a flower and twirl it in silence sitting on the mountain. Me, I'm a nice Christian girl, and and while I wish I could quote something kicky and inspirational that Jesus had to say about writing... The truth is that when students ask me for the best practical advice I know, I always pick up a piece of paper and pantomime scribbling away. My students usually think this is a very wise and zen-like thing for me to convey. Mostly, I forget to give Natalie Goldberg credit. (laughs) But write about what? They ask next. Write about carrot sticks, I tell them. And then she goes back into this, like, her own writing about Mm -hmm. school lunches. Because throughout the chapter, she's been breaking up her thoughts on writing about school lunches with actual writing she has done on her school lunches. So you can kind of see how it will take you in these interesting places. And it'll open up memories that you wouldn't have necessarily thought about. Um, But so I'm curious if you were like given an assignment to write about your school lunches, is there like something that is floating to the surface first that you would like start with? Uh. When I think about school lunches, I think about that rectangle pizza Mm. that they would make on (laughs) the giant cookie sheets Oh, and how it was offered every single day and it was disgusting. Mm -hmm. And then I also like think about, um, I I also think about where I grew up and how there were a lot of people that uh, couldn't afford to pay for their school lunches. And so... Um, I actually have an association of being in kindergarten and not being able to articulate this at the time, but being aware of my economic privilege at that age, that young. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I think that a topic like that can be as rich as you want to make it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so wild how it will like one thread leads to another and then all of a sudden you're like oh my god I didn't even know that I remembered all these things yeah (laughs) but yeah I remember this like very specific sub sandwich that they would do on Thursdays because at our cafeteria like I think many they had like um every day was like a different main Mm -hmm. meal and Thursdays was this like I think it was like an Italian type of sub but it was like toasted bread and it was really good like I know school lunch is gross but this was like yeah but there are those handful of main courses that you're like no I actually do like this yeah yeah and I would put mayonnaise on it and it had to have had like 25,000 grams of fat in it because it was like you know (laughs) who cares (laughs) and whatever else but it was like the most that's why it was good thing 
Yeah. And I, I don't eat like pork or beef anymore. And so I would not be able to eat that now. But I, God, sometimes I'm just like, I would kill to have a bite. of <laughs> Italian subs are great, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. God. But yeah, I think it's, and then as I was thinking about the sub, it made me think about this like special cookie I would buy from the grocery store for my lunches. And in high school, I was having like a lot of problems with eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And there was a period of time where I would eat for lunch, nothing but celery and that one cookie. Yeah. And it was so fucked up and terrible. But I like did that for, I don't know, months and months. And it's so grim. But it's like, God, imagine where you're going to go after that. Once you remember that that's what you were doing. What is what else is there to talk about? Yeah. So I think it is quite rich yeah rich and it's a topic that necessarily invokes uh nostalgia because presumably the people who are writing about this are not still in the phase of getting school lunches so hopefully not yeah i mean if you are great but i mean maybe you're an eighth grader and you're reading this book i don't know but chances (laughs) are not and you're like oh god i have so much to get through and it's like you're right you do just buckle up okay Okay, so the last chapter I'm going to tell you about is called Jealousy. And when I saw that there was a chapter called Jealousy, I was like, oh boy, this one's for me. (laughs) Um, Because jealousy is something I feel I'm especially prone to. And lately, just kind of like through random circumstances, I've heard a lot of different people talking about it in a way that I, I feel like has relieved some of the shame I've always felt about having that much jealousy. Hmm. Um, like there's this one social media creator who also is writing a book right now. And she was talking recently about her just lifelong experience of jealousy, but she was talking about it in such like a matter of fact way that I was like, wow, you're just admitting to, you're just copying to this right now. Huh? Um, (laughs) and I just, I've always felt like that is something I have to like keep so under wraps that I'm like a jealous monster. Um, and she was just like, well, here's the thing about me. (laughs) So I don't know. I found it interesting. And then I read this chapter and I felt that this was also very, um, just honest about jealousy. So when we're doing anything creative where it's really hard to find success in that thing, like Mm -hmm. being an artist, being an actor, being a writer and success is in quotes because it's like, what is success? But I think in this contest context, it's like making a living off of this, being recognized, like publishing, Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, It's so, so hard not to fall into very intense jealousy when someone else gets the thing that we have been wanting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really love this chapter because she talks about that exact thing where she is describing this period of her time where she and her son, she was a single mom, uh, were kind of barely scraping by financially. And a a friend of hers, a writer friend, just started to have a lot of success as a writer out of nowhere and was making a lot of money. And this friend was like calling her all the time to tell her about it. And she was just like turning into a monster listening to it. So she describes three things. Well, and she also, she describes the jealousy as like real suffering that she was experiencing. And that's how I've experienced it too, where it's like eating away at you And you know it's only hurting you, but you just are like, I don't know how to stop this. Like, you can't seem to get yourself out of the quicksand. 
and it sucks. And so she's describing that very vividly. Mm -hmm. And then she talks about three things that she ultimately found that helped her. One was time, you know, getting older. The second was talking about it. And the third was using it as material for her writing. Hmm. And I loved this because this last year I found myself doing the same thing. I've been having this like insane crushing jealousy and like competitiveness with like a woman who I don't even know on social media um, (laughs) who was also writing a memoir who I just like came to like, oh God, like obsess about. And I ended up writing an essay of my own about this like weird distant envy I've had on social media for many years. And it's turned out to be one of like my favorite things I've ever written. So (laughs) I just, I had kind of already moved through this process myself in a way. And I was reading about her doing the same thing. And I was like, oh my God, I love this so much. That's so funny. Yeah. So anyway, I'm going to read a couple sections that she is talking about in this that I thought were so funny. And let's see. I feel like I maybe... Yes, sorry, I didn't write down the one that I wanted to tell you. So this is, again, her kind of like Mm funniness coming forward. So she says, one of my deepest beliefs is that to live as if we're dying can set us free. Dying people teach us to pay attention and to forgive and not sweat the small things. So every time this friend called, I tried to will myself into forgiving both of us. I had been around someone from the South that summer who was always exclaiming, isn't that great? Only she made it sound almost, she made it almost rhyme with bright. So when my friend would call with her latest good news, always presented humbly like some born-again Christian Miss America contestant, I'd say, isn't that great, huh? Isn't that great? <laughs> I, like, I was like, wow, have I been there or what? Um, and then she also says another piece of the solution dropped into place when my friend Judy said that the problem was trying to stop the jealousy and competitiveness. And the main thing was not to let it fuel my self-loathing. She said it was nuts for me to try to be happy for this other writer. I cannot tell you how much this helped. I was raised in a culture that promotes this competitiveness, this insatiability, this fantasy of needing hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and then in the next breath shames you for feeling any feelings of longing or envy or fear that it will always be someone else's turn. I was only doing what I had been groomed to do. And then this last uh, section She's talking about how writing about it helped. So then I started to write about my envy. I got to look in this in some cold, dark corners, see what was there, shine a little light on what we all have in common. Sometimes this human stuff is slimy and pathetic, jealousy especially so. But better to feel it and talk about it and walk through it than to spend a lifetime being silently poisoned. Um, and I feel like that essay I wrote this last year about my own weird jealousy um, kind of was my way of talking about it. Cause like when I write, that's me like processing and also just knowing that if I could put this into words, it would help someone else who was having the same experience as me and feeling like shit about it. And um, I think that that is one of the best things that writing can do is help us feel seen and connected to other people and know that we're not alone in our experiences Mm -hmm. yeah just like her writing helped you also feel that way yeah I read a nonfiction book about a year ago I think it was called big feelings and it's a 
book that is kind of, I don't know, kind of falls between like a psychology book and like self-help. And um, the book is like very approachable, very readable. It's only, you know, 200 pages or something. It's kind of short. And uh, each, it goes through four or five different like big feelings, which is what the authors call them, which is nice. um, anger, jealousy. Oh boy, I'm, I'm like forgetting the other ones, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> so uh, regardless, uh, one of the things that they wrote about is like, what do we do with all of these big feelings, especially given like all the things that have happened in the last five or so years and people are really yeah. struggling with what to do with all this anger, what to do with all this, like whatever. Um, and in the chapter on jealousy, one of the things that I thought was interesting is that they talked about all of these big feelings as things that are messages coming from your body and what is your body trying to tell you about what you're seeing or what is happening to you based on how you're feeling. And in the jealousy one, a lot of it was to focus on why you're jealous. Like, what is it about seeing this person succeed in writing? Which like for her, obviously it was like, well, I want that. I want to be a writer. And um, for other people, maybe it's like, oh, this person is financially more secure than I am. And I want that. And so for a lot of people who maybe don't know why they're feeling jealous, I think interrogating that and saying like, yeah, I I feel jealous because I didn't realize it until just now, but I want to be a professor or I want to take a trip to Europe and travel or whatever it is, like can be uh, helpful or just saying like, like saying it out loud, like, oh, I actually don't want to do this. Like, I must be jealous of something else, you know, Yeah, um, yeah. can also be like helpful. Yeah, I, totally. And I think it, a lot of us are not used to going into that second drop down of why am I feeling this? Or like, what is this actually about? Um, and I was going to ask you, like, how you feel about the emotion of jealousy and if you have found any like really good antidote to it. Cause for me, jealousy is like one of the hardest things to diffuse. Oh, easily. Um, it's always gratitude to me. Uh, because I think that jealousy comes from like a scarcity mindset that I don't have enough. And so I need to be jealous of like what someone else has because I need what they have. Um, and so to me, being grateful for what I do have is always the antidote because I can say like, but look at what you have right now. Like you can be so grateful for so many things and just like, not just saying and being like, I'm grateful for my life and then moving on, but like sitting with that and like closing your eyes and doing an exercise and like almost meditating on what you're grateful for can just like completely change my mood. And I have like a gratitude journal that um, I think is always like really helpful for that because I can like look back and be like, holy shit, I have 200 entries of different things I'm grateful for. Like how fucking lucky am I, you know? Um, And, and so yeah, I don't know. I think the antidote to scarcity is abundance. And so like, what, it, what is my life abundant with that I can be grateful for? 
Yeah. Anytime I think about abundance, I remember this thing that my therapist told me like years ago when I was in like, just like very, you know, lonely and frustrated with my life. And, and I, I felt like very trapped in it because I was like thinking about essentially manifestation and like how we attract good things to ourselves. And I had this like kind of instinctual feeling that like, if I kept feeling this dark loneliness, I was only going to get more of that. Mm. And that made it worse because it was like, but I can't stop it. What is <laughs> happening? Like, this is terrible. And she was telling me about this um, Native American practice that was like when you, when there was drought, that it was there. And I don't know what tribe did this. So I am so sorry. But this is all she told me. Um, it was like, when there's a drought, you don't pray that you get rain. Like you don't say, Oh, we need rain. We need rain. You just pray rain because saying I need this is only putting more scarcity out into the world and saying like, Oh, I have a lack of this thing. So instead of like focusing on how you don't have this thing you need, you just focus on the thing itself Mm. and you feel what it's like to actually have it. So you're like thinking rain, not I don't have rain. (laughs) So it just was a little bit of an interesting mindset mindset shift for me where I would, instead of thinking about like how lonely I was and how I wanted companionship and connection and things, I would focus on what that feeling is like, because I have obviously had that in my life. And so I would call up that feeling and just think about it more than how much I wished I could have it, you know? Yeah. And I think it's essentially like, a a gratitude practice in that you are focusing on what you have and what you, you, you know, you can like call up for yourself versus like what you don't have. And that just tends to call in more. Maybe it's just you noticing what you have and it's not actually like, Oh, you got more things. Right. 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 But it still changes your reality in a way. It's less, it's like changing the emotion that you're focusing on because you weren't focused, like when you're saying I want something, you're focusing on the desire of it, which can be, can feel really like limiting and unhelpful and like suffocating in a lot of ways versus being like, I'm focusing on love. And to think a lot about love probably doesn't put you in a bad mood to think a lot about like wanting something you can't have right now or don't have right yeah. now is like, yeah, yeah, of course that's going to put you in a bad mood. Like <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, like, exactly. yeah, totally. Yeah. And I actually, that same content creator I was mentioning who uh, was talking about her own jealousy, she made a comment recently that I keep thinking about, and I'm not sure I totally agree with it, but she was saying like, when you are feeling jealous, like look at what that person has and and figure out like you were saying what it is you're jealous of because that's actually probably going to tell you what what you should be moving towards Mm -hmm. like she was describing people who had written books and had success with books and she used to be a lawyer and so she would be able to look at that and see like my jealousy of this creative pursuit that they'd had success in was just revealing how much I wanted to do that too Mm -hmm. and I think it can be good advice but I think it can also kind of like send us down like a dark path like maybe you're envious of the way someone looks like you want to be thinner or you want to be prettier or whatever Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't necessarily say like that if you focus on that it should tell you like the direction you should move in because we don't always have control over 
those things. Like, right. So it's like, what? Can, so this is telling me that I need to lose 50 pounds? Like, that's. Not, yeah. That's or that, like, I need to be thing. taller, which is not even possible, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I think, like, that is a useful exercise to a point, but we should check ourselves in knowing that there are some things in our society that are just a black hole that we can move into all we want and it will never satisfy us. Yeah. So I think, you know, notice it and let it reveal things to you, but like maybe don't trust it. Or like, I I mean, in design, like we always, we say like, ask why five times like that. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's like, well, yeah, I, why are you jealous? Because they're beautiful. Well, why does that make you beautiful? I want to be beautiful. Mm. Well, don't just stop at three. Why do you want to be beautiful? Well, I want people to treat me better. And it's like, okay, well, now we're getting to like a different thing, you know? (laughs) So it's like that, that is fundamentally different. And sometimes what we think we want, again, we've talked about this on the podcast is not exactly what we think it is. And so like doing the work to untangle why you're jealous of a certain thing and what that connotes to you may be mm-hmm. really helpful for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, but okay. So I'm pretty much done. I'm just going to wrap it up with like a final thought. So I think as with um, many of our human struggles, the solutions are made up of these small pieces that come together over time to help us move forward when she was talking about jealousy, it was like all these little things that she fit together that ultimately gave her that ability to be like, Oh, I don't care about this in the way that I thought I did. And it's the same with writing. Like there's no one magic pill that helps you become a better writer. It's lots of little things that you work on over time. And I think the writing and the process of learning how to be a better writer requires perseverance and a devotion to yourself that can be really hard to come by. But the more you do it and the more you show yourself that you have interesting ideas, vivid memories, good intuition, the more you learn to trust yourself, the more you are able to let go and let whatever it is inside of you that wants to be heard speak its piece onto the page. So with each new piece of writing that you feel that spark in and you're like, oh, wow, there was something good in that. It gives you more confidence that you will have that spark in the next piece of writing, too. So I think it's just this compounding confidence that the more you do it and the more you see that you are good at it and you can have success in whatever small ways that is, the more confidence you will have to keep on doing it in the future. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that is a lot of like what she's teaching in the book, too. And I just found it really good and helpful. So that is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. I like that. I, I think that it makes sense and um, it's probably true for a lot of things, right? Like we're not motivated yeah. to do things if we feel like we're not getting anything out of it. So whatever like mm-hmm. small encouragements we can really hang on to that keep us going yeah. is, is important. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, that's that. Well, so. thank you so much. You're so welcome. Um, and we look forward to talk again next time. <laughs> so <laughs> tune in again yeah. uh, next time for more of our bullshit. <laughs>